0: I love the Christmas season uh, as much as probably the rest of you do, and uh, there are often a lot of traditions within Christmastide that have the potential of distorting our view and understanding of Jesus, particularly nativity scenes uh, and the focus on this infant who is cute and cuddly. Uh, Long ago, our younger kids used to love to take the baby Jesus out of our nativity scene and just kind of cart him around with them. Uh, as this little leprechaun alongside of them. Um, and that is a, a kind of taming of what is going on in this wonderful story that's told in Scripture. Simeon, who at the end of Luke 2 says something quite stark, in contrast to sometimes the over-sentimentality of Christmas, which when he says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's a pretty strong statement about this little baby and what his purposes in the world will be. A New Testament scholar said this uh, in, in a piece that he wrote, Carols stir us, holy words inspire us, the golden glow from the manger warms us. A little religion at Christmas is fine, but that glow in the manger comes from the light of the world. It exposes evil and either redeems it or destroys it. The babe in the manger is far more than an object for sentimental size. He is the son of God who must be accepted as ruler or confronted as rival. Accepted as ruler or confronted as rival. We see those two responses in the Epiphany reading, um, which we are doing the the readings from the Feast of the Epiphany from yesterday, in Matthew chapter two, when these Magi come from the east and find Jesus. And there is a lot that we can talk about around this uh, the Feast of the Epiphany. Um, We can talk about worldwide mission and the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, has now been made known to the world, signified by these strangers from a foreign land coming and worshiping him in the manger. Uh, This mystery that Paul writes about in Ephesians 3 of the Gentiles are now co-heirs with the Jews in the promises of God in the Messiah. We can talk about how this story is representative of of so much fulfillment of the Old Testament, the story that has come before it. As we read in Isaiah 60 about the nations pouring into Zion and bringing gifts, gold and frankincense to worship the one true God, or in Psalm 72, how these gifts from Sheba and Seba are brought in to, to honor this king, this son of David, and all the nations will be blessed under his rule and care. This is a story that speaks about God's faithfulness, but I want us to focus this morning on the response to Jesus in this epiphany story in Matthew 2. Ruler or rival? Which is he? in your life and in mine. As a rival, we see that response in Herod, Herod, the tyrant. Think about for a moment what it was like to be the king of the Jews, the one whose legitimacy was certainly in doubt. Uh, Herod was a puppet king held up by the Roman Empire over the Jewish people and certainly was not a benevolent king, uh, was known to be incredibly violent and killed members of his own family to secure his rule and reign. But imagine being in his position and having this entourage. Now, it wasn't just three people who kind of stumbled into Jerusalem. These were wealthy, well-to-do, important people from the foreign cultures. They certainly brought an entourage with them and they came into the city and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? How would you feel if you were the king of the Jews? And they came in asking to find the one who had been born the king of the Jews. So he responds with threat, being troubled, and with fear. And we're told in verse 3 that all Jerusalem, it says when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Because the status quo would be undone. Herod knew that his life would not be the same the insiders in Jerusalem knew that if this was true, there would be a, an uprising, an upturning of the, of the established world order, an order from which they benefited greatly, and that their positions of privilege and power and control would be threatened, because everybody knows that kings are not born to coddle or to just encourage, but they're born to rule and to reign, to take authority, to execute judgment. So, Herod schemes in response to this news, and he takes drastic measures. If we continue the reading in Matthew 2, we find that Herod goes so far as to have all the male children around, in and around Bethlehem under the age of two, slaughtered as an attempt to secure his present position. This kind of response to Jesus' arrival can be true not just for Herod, but for us too right? sir. it's true, Jesus is a savior and a counselor and a friend and a teacher, but above all, Jesus is king. A king who has come to rule over and reign over his subjects, you and me. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm pretty selfish. When I consider my life, I'm I'm kind of aghast again and again at just how self-centered I can be. And our selfishness more than anything else, is fighting to protect one thing, and that's control. We love to be in control. And this king is a rival to that love for control. Think back to the beginning when everything went wrong in Genesis 3. It was the it was our earliest parents, Adam and Eve, who took control with the help, yes, of the serpent, but took control. They became their own sovereigns and in so doing committed an act of insurrection against the one true sovereign king, the God, the creator of heaven and earth. And it's that same act that's playing out here in Matthew 2 with Herod and that can play out in all of our lives in different ways. We want to be king who calls the shots, but we know that this king will turn our life upside down. Is he a rival to you? Or on the flip side, is he a ruler? The wise men come from the East, we're told. We don't know that there were only three. That's part of tradition. It's not part of the biblical text. And scholars are divided about who these foreigners actually were. But the best guess is they were astrologers. They were, they were, they were the kind of intellectual types who studied the skies and interpreted the skies. This wasn't like a bunch of city lights. They could see the stars. And when things happened, they would read the skies. They may have been magicians. They had wisdom, for sure. They were people of importance and significance in learning. And what happens? They see this sign in the heavens, and so they go searching. When the sky's order was interrupted, they see God at work, and they embark on a long and arduous journey aided by a divine light. There have been some attempts at scientific explanations of what happened with this star back in around 7 or, seven or so A.D., But the reality is, whatever explanations we can put on this, is there was very clearly a supernatural thing going on. And they were guided in this journey by this divine light. Possibly they had been guided by the testimony of Jewish exiles who lived in the diaspora, who had been speaking of their hopes about this king that would come. And so they set out. And they set out and seek this king with joy, we're told in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, with great joy. And they came to worship him, verse 2 and verse 11. And this word for worship can have two meanings, both of which are probably indicated here in Matthew. On the one hand, it can mean paying homage to an earthly ruler or king. And on the other hand, it can mean also, of course, to, to that which only is rightfully given to the divine himself from a Jewish understanding, that true worship. And it's likely that Matthew intends for us to hear overtones of both. It's interesting, isn't it, that Matthew's gospel begins here with men from the uttermost ends of the earth traveling a long journey to Jerusalem to worship the king. And the gospel ends with men in Jerusalem worshiping the king and being sent to the ends of the earth to proclaim his rule and reign and salvation. And their worship included laying down things of tremendous value, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The giving of gifts to kings was a way of making political alliances and putting yourself in submission to a true ruler and king. And so they're forging an alliance with this newborn king and coming under his reign and offering their allegiance as their ruler. Now, before you think you've got this all figured out, let's, let me give you a gentle warning, since we're probably mostly, I would say, in this room, insiders. In the Gospels, it's often those on the inside who push Jesus away as a rival. They're the ones who had all these promises. They were rightfully their promises but they're troubled, and they're pushing Jesus away. It doesn't just begin with Herod and all of Jerusalem being troubled in verse 3, but it culminates, of course, in the cross of Jesus. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We don't want you. You're not what we thought you would be. You don't fit our sense of expectations of what we are guaranteed or what, what we're to have. In fact, as insiders, we can often develop a sense of claim on God. I have this claim on you. God owes me something. God owes them something. And it's easy for us to push Jesus away as a rival when he shows up in our lives in ways that don't meet our expectations. Or I might say when he doesn't show up in our lives in the ways that we might expect him to. Life can be going down this track that we don't think is right and good, and suddenly, instead of being our ruler, Jesus becomes our rival to be resisted and pushed away. That's what we see throughout all of the Gospels, not just the Gospel of Matthew. But in contrast, it's those on the outside who often recognize who Jesus is and push to reach him. This journey of the Magi was not just like an overnight trip on on a speed train or something. This was months long, setting up camp, tearing down camp, expending tremendous resources to make this long journey to find this new king. We see the outsiders making all the effort here. We see it throughout the gospel narratives with that woman who broke the jar of perfume in Luke 7. Remember in the, in the, 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 the house of the Jew and she comes along and anoints his feet the outsider. Zacchaeus, who climbed up the tree to look down upon Jesus and meet him and, and encounter him. He's the outsider, the tax collector who's been rejected. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus interacts with the centurion, a non-Jewish man who shows such tremendous faith. Jesus says, I've found no faith like this in all of Israel. And then he says, he goes on to say in that text, there will be many from the east and west who come to recline with Abraham at my table. The outsiders coming and finding life. The blind man, the blind man on the roadside as Jesus is, is entering Jerusalem, son of David, have mercy on me, named in Mark's gospel as Bartimaeus. The children, again, outsiders, people of no status in that culture, who beg to come near Jesus, who are pushed away by the disciples and whom Jesus says, no, I welcome these. And then perhaps most of all, it's that wonderful parable told in Luke 15 where the son who had become an outcast Who taken his inheritance and spent it on everything that that he shouldn't have, who comes to suddenly see who his father is and runs back to him and is embraced by his father and says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I have no claim on you anymore. And in that place of desperation, of no claim, he finds that he understands the nature of his father. And who is it that stands judgingly behind him? It's the insider. It's the elder brother who's been with the father all along, who can't see his nature and his beauty and his grace and his mercy. What defines all of these people on the outside is they don't have a claim upon this king. They know they don't have any worthiness in and of themselves. And what is the dangerous place for the insiders is they think they have some kind of claim upon him. And when he doesn't meet that claim, he begins to be a a rival that is pushed away. Those who have no claim on God but come to him, no claim on this king, but come to him gladly, gratefully, and humbly, begin to form the new unified people of this new born king, irrespective of their ethnicity, of their gender, of their socioeconomic status, of their education level. They embrace and engage this one true king, and it's their response to this king as ruler that draws them in together, and they've been welcomed by him in this one new family, this new kingdom, and they then together begin to bear the light that he has shown into the world, through themselves into the world around them. And that's what Paul means in Ephesians 3 when he says that through the church the manifold wisdom of God that might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through this ragtag motley crew of outsiders who have come to cling to Jesus as ruler, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. What is that manifold wisdom? Well, there in the context of Ephesians, It is the fact that this family is now one new humanity made up of many disparate parts that are unified now in the Messiah. Jew plus Gentile, the dividing wall of hostility broken down, a reconciled community under the king of reconciliation. And this is what we long to embody as the church and as we embody that kind of unity under Jesus, our ruler. We shine to the world his light. And that's why we want to continue to focus in this year ahead at Church of the Cross on this ministry of reconciliation under Jesus, the true King. All of us equally outsiders, all of us equally with no claim upon him, all of us therefore welcomed on the same basis by his grace and in love now for one another, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us, showing to the world the light of this true King. So this yesterday's Feast of Epiphany, as we celebrate the worldwide mission of this true king, we need to see again in our own lives the need for him to rule over us. Some questions for you as we close. Do you seek this king with joy, like the wise men, the magi? Do you worship him? Do you offer to him gifts, the things of value in your life? Do you lay down your, your time at his feet? Your money at his feet? Your words at his feet? Your desires at his feet? Or is this a time in your life when he's more of a, a rival? There's a claim somewhere deep in your soul that you're protesting before him with, and therefore beginning to push him away, troubled by his claims of sovereignty in your life. The Magi had a divine light, a star. We have the benefit, unlike the Magi, of having seen the full glory Of this King, not just in a manger, but exalted and lifted up on a cross. This one who claims allegiance over the world, whose mission knows no boundaries, and whose family will comprise people from every tongue and tribe and nation, comes in humility lives in obscurity embraces a career of opposition suffering and misunderstanding so much so that the people who put him on the cross begin to mock him and say if you really are a king then you would come down from the cross and yet he stays we have the benefit of on this side of the cross of seeing the difference of his kingship relative to every other kind of king in love to forgo that which was properly his own, to give it up, to lay it down, so that we could come and embrace him and know him. Yes, if we do this, if we embrace him as ruler and and worship him as Lord, our lives will be undone. Nothing will be safe. Nothing is safe. Nothing can be reserved from his rule, just like Herod knew. But what we receive, his life, is so, so much more. We can hold on to what we know and scrape by. Or we can bring all that we have and lay it down at his feet as a gift and find true life, the fullness of life, together as a reconciled family underneath his rule. Let's pray.